This is Misconduct, Money and Reputation, a podcast by reputation specialists Lansons and law firm Catton. Hello and welcome to the episode. This is our first episode in a new series for those working in and around financial services, particularly um, asset and wealth management, where we seek to navigate a path through some of the more complex issues where regulation and reputation intersect. Non-financial misconduct, which is the regulatory term that covers what has been alleged at OD Asset Management, is one such issue. My name is David Masters, Director and Asset Management Lead at Reputation Consultancy Lansons. I'm Neil Robson. I'm a regulatory compliance partner at US-UK law firm Catton, where we specialise in advising financial market participants on regulatory compliance matters, including FCA rules and regulations. We're joined today by my colleague Kira McBrien, who's joining us for the podcast. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. So to get us started, Neil, it's probably worth you giving us a quick rundown of the specific regulatory issues here. What is non-financial misconduct and why is it of concern to the FCA? Well, it's a relatively new concept in the sense that the FCA's rules on personal conduct within the financial services sector, which traditionally have focused on senior managers, or previously known as approved persons, who were individually approved by the FCA to fulfil certain functions, like being a director, a compliance officer, money laundering reporting officer, portfolio manager, someone facing clients in a trading function. Since the implementation of the senior managers and certification rules, the FCA now only approves the very senior individuals with the firm itself required to certify individuals downstream from the very senior people certify them as being fit and proper. And the FCA's rules in the Fitness and Propriety Handbook, as well as the Code of Conduct for all of the aforementioned persons, they focus on their conduct in the workplace. Non-financial misconduct is a relatively recent concept where the FCA is looking at the conduct of those individuals outside the workplace and whether it really has an impact on whether they're truly a fit and proper person to conduct their activities in the regulated sector. Okay, so this is quite interesting because you mentioned senior um, senior managers, etc. So a few years ago, uh, when they introduced the senior manager regime, I think it, there was a sort of feeling that there was a sort of backdoor a, a focus on culture taking place. But actually, we've seen um, recently with comments post-Woodford made by the um, senior management of the FCA that actually um, they're much more focused on uh, culture at, uh, at financial services companies and asset management firms in particular. Is, is non-financial misconduct part of that or is it something separate? I think it is. I mean, the tone from the top being set by management and then obviously disseminated down to all the other workers within regulated financial institutions, that's something the FCA has cared about for quite a while. So, yes, non-financial misconduct, looking at the broad range of what people do outside the workplace does it impact on their ability to do their job in the office? Does it impact on their reputation in the industry? And does it impact actually on the financial services sector's own reputation across society more generally? Now, what's interesting is that the FCA's own rules, the fit and proper rules, don't focus on misconduct outside the workplace. And in fact, there's one small section which talks about when a firm is assessing someone for the certification rules, are they fit and proper? It looks at, well, okay, well, what if there's a criminal conviction? What if 
uh, and two of the examples they actually give in the rules focus on things like a driving offence uh, or an offence for possession of sort of drugs or alcohol um, issues. And the guidance from the FCA specifically says it's only really a relevant issue if it impacts on their ability to work in the workplace. So a couple of examples over recent years. So we had one client uh, where a portfolio manager had been caught on a Saturday night uh, with a wrap of cocaine and the compliance officer and the general counsel were asking us, what do we do? Is this a, is this a non-financial misconduct issue? And we assessed the relevant individual. The, the individual was interviewed by the GC and the compliance officer. It turned out it was a, a stupid offence for the individual's 30th birthday. His friends had bought him some coke as a, a party treat. It wasn't regular course of conduct. You know, he wasn't using cocaine in the office his workplace abilities to do his job were not impacted by this. He recognised he'd been stupid. Uh, and so the firm decided, well, actually, no, he is still fit and proper to do the job. And that's the sort of balancing act that you have to take, that if he was using cocaine in the office, maybe that was a conduct issue. Or if he'd been dealing coke outside the workplace, then definitely that would then be non-financial misconduct that the firm would have to assess in terms of the wider picture. And also, I think it's a very interesting grey area, non-financial misconduct in the space of work social events. So you're right, there is a very much a grey zone in terms of how the regulatory authorities, whether the SCA or otherwise, approach what happens outside the workplace when it clearly doesn't impact on their ability to do their job, whoever mm. they are in this scenario. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we could we could relate that to everyday life. I mean, we've recently had the, the Kevin Spacey trial um, we're seeing things coming out of the Houses of Parliament, accusations about conduct of, of, of various individuals, various parliamentarians. So clearly this is something where there's, there's a lot of focus, there's a lot of media attention at the moment. But if we go back to the history of non-financial misconduct, I mean, it's not something we hear a lot of about. So have there been many cases? Uh, what are the sort of, you know, the precedents that have been set so far? It's interesting because the FCA have only publicly prohibited seven individuals for non-financial misconduct, um, and that's various kinds of non-financial misconduct, including um, sexual assault, um, possession of indecent images of children. And I think if you look at those seven cases, it's interesting to see that probably the most famous is Jonathan Burroughs from 2014, which is still used in a lot of compliance training. Um, but there's a huge gap between um, that case. He was case. the fair dodger, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That, yeah, I mean, his case, I, I use it actually when I'm doing conduct training with clients, that it's the prime example. And everybody knows the case, but I, I use it to hammer the message home that, you know, he would get on at a rural East Sussex station uh, where there were no ticket barriers. He'd ride the train all the way into London, get off at Cannon Street and use his Oyster card. So he paid whatever the minimum or sorry, whatever the maximum fare was for within London zones. So he saved himself thousands and thousands of pounds over a longer period of time. He got caught. Uh, he settled, actually, with Southern Trains or whichever rail network it was, I forget. But um, the FCA eventually found out about it because the Evening Standard did an expose of him. Uh, and he hadn't told his employers at BlackRock, um, but they eventually said, well, hold on a minute. Clearly, you lack honesty and integrity. Therefore, we have to fire you. So he lost a job with a salary of a million pounds a year plus whatever bonuses he was getting because of some stupid thing he did, which he admitted he knew was wrong, but clearly represented the fact that he lacked integrity. 
Um, and that's our sort of starting point for all these seven cases of non-financial misconduct. He wasn't doing anything wrong at work. But the FCA said, well, hold on a minute. Fitness and propriety tests say you must have honesty, integrity and maintain a good reputation. And he clearly didn't. And also the broader similarity that it came to light through the Evening Standard, which is similar to how, you know, this um, the ODA case kind of came to, you know, the public eye by the Financial Times, despite there being kind of allegations previously against him. Yeah, yeah, very much the case. But what's interesting is that, you know, six years pass since the Jonathan Paul Barrows case, BlackRock, where he was you know, effectively, you know, fair dodging. Uh, and it was the FCA themselves who brought three banning orders into place back in 2020 against three individuals who'd been convicted of criminal offences. And the FCA came out and said, look, non-financial misconduct. So they really made it a big thing in 2020. Uh, three very different cases, really outrageous criminal convictions for really horrible offences. So the first of these cases was uh, a guy called Mark Horsey, who pitched himself as the celebrity advisor, the advisor to the stars. Uh, he built up his own financial advisory practice. Uh, he actually rented an office at the uh, Wolves Football Club grounds. Uh, and they became, in fact, many of the players became his clients, uh, along with uh, celebrity singer Kerry Katona of Atomic Kitten. Um, so, uh, but B, B lister. <laughs> well, it depends how you define your stars, I suppose. <laughs> but um, he was banned by the FCA for performing any regulated activity function, so effectively banned from the financial services industry, because he'd actually set up a webcam, a spy cam, effectively, to record one of his tenants having a shower. The FCA said, well, because he's the sole director and the advisor to these individuals, and he's looking after other people's money. Bottom line is, he's not fit and proper. Mm -hmm. So this was a real clear case of non-financial misconduct that would be bringing the financial services sector into disrepute. Mm -hmm. Um, The second one of that trio back in 2020 uh, was even more egregious in some ways. There was a guy called Frank Cochran, who was the sole director and a shareholder of a financial advice firm. So again, same sort of structure uh, without the B-list stars. Um, but he was convicted of sexual assault, somebody who'd worked with him, who he'd spent years manipulating. He had a sexual relationship with the woman, even though she didn't always want to. So actually, the next one um, was very colourful. Mm-hmm. I, think, very... I think I know who you might mean on this one, yes. Well, the media loved this in the sense that they nicknamed the individual um, Paul Flowers, the Crystal Methodist. Which was a, a fantastic piece of journalism. You, you know, in, in, our, in our world, you, you have to sometimes put your hand up and say, that's, that's very good, that's very clever. And the Crystal Methodist has stuck. And you refer to the Crystal Methodist and everybody knows who you're talking about. Indeed. And for those who, who don't, uh, he was the chairman of the Co-op Bank, but used his work email and his work phone to book rent boys, to buy drugs, uh, to organise orgies. Yes. Uh, And obviously we have direct experience of that here because we represented the co-op bank from the discovery of its its rather large black hole through to just a a couple of years ago once it had sort of stabilised as a business. But obviously, and we were very focused on, you know, some of what was going on around him. I remember um, suddenly out of the blue we were told that he was doing a Newsnight interview with Jeremy Paxman. And you're, you're sat there thinking, well, what, what, what's the point of this? Well, you know, there's nothing sh- 
to come out, surely. You know, as you said, it's all very colourful. It's all in the public domain. Um, it was actually a complete damp squib of an interview, and I do, I, we did end up wondering why they had agreed, the BBC had agreed to do it, why Jeremy Paxman had, had agreed to do it. But it, I think it just showed how much that particular incident caught the public imagination, caught the public eye. Yeah. Here, here was a man who had become the chairman of a, of a, of a household name, one of the, one of the best-loved banks in Britain, um, with no financial services knowledge or experience, it appeared. And as, you know, as we all saw when he sort of collapsed or, or sort of sort of you know melted down in front of the Treasury Select Committee. You know, he was it was a very strange appointment with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and the fact that he was engaged in all this very colourful activity, uh, I think just reinforced that. But it was also quite problematic for the bank at the time because clearly you have this substantial black hole black hole. You're trying ultimately to ensure the financial stability that the bank is being reported on fairly uh, and 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 accurately, and then you have this going on in the background, which is always a major distraction. And obviously, you know, from a tabloid point of view, um, you know, it's a great story, and it just kept rolling. And at the end of the day, he was actually only convicted criminal conviction for possession of drugs. Um, not that you know the other activities were in any way illegal necessarily, but what the FCA ultimately banned him for was the fact that he wasn't fit and proper. He shouldn't have been the chairman of a bank holding, you know, Mrs. Miggins' money, your money, my money, anybody else's money, you know, the man in the street. Uh, so that's why he was banned again, because there was so much media attention on him. There was a criminal conviction. He clearly wasn't fit and proper. And he was bringing the industry into disrepute. I also think this case is one of the most interesting ones because it brings up the question of whether a criminal conviction alone is enough to... Um, um, for sorry, a banning order. For, yeah. yeah. Well, I think this was, this was the point I was getting to. In what we've heard so far is, you know, all these people have had some form of criminal conviction. Obviously, with Odie, we are in a situation whereby these are allegations um, which are strenuously denied by Crispin Odie. Um, there has been a court case, but that did not lead to a conviction. It, it you know, he he, he was cleared. Um, I know that there has been some question marks raised about the, the judge's comments, um, but that's not really what we can comment on today. But um, if there is no criminal conviction against Odie, what are the FCA's powers? Well, the reputation point is a key one, because let's be frank, everything we've seen from the FT expose of recent weeks would suggest that Mr. O'Day's reputation is now in tatters. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the the FT, the, the, the claims that they've published from these now significantly more than a dozen women, now 19, dating back to 1985, with the same modus operandi in the sense of how he approached these women, developed the relationship and sort of lunged at them, I think one of the phrases that the FT used from several of these women, and, and grabbing, uh, they all seem to follow a same or a similar pattern. Uh, and there's the old phrase, of course, there's no smoke without fire. Although I reiterate, as you did, these are merely allegations at this point. There's no criminal conviction yet that has been uh, been found against him. But nonetheless, his reputation is in tatters. His colleagues clearly were trying to make sure he was now out of the business. Uh, and as you and I have been discussing in the past, David, the the prime brokers, the banks that were operating with Oday Asset Management, they quite quickly realised that they wanted to be disassociated mm -hmm. with a business which had a principle that was uh, 
dirty in the sort of regulatory sense. He wasn't deemed fit and proper by the media at that point in time, notwithstanding the FCA had not yet at that point made any uh, findings against him. So when the first allegations were brought against Crispin O'Day, um, we understand that the O'Day Asset Management Executive Committee decided that they needed to do an investigation. But Kira, the interesting thing was, what happened next? He fired them and then appointed a new executive committee who then brought an investigation against Crispin O'Day and then he sacked the second executive um, committee. Then the third executive committee were then clearly yes men because they said he was fit and proper, which from the allegations that have been brought potentially could raise questions. And according to the FT, there was a significant HR file on various complaints against Mr O'Day brought by the receptionists and other women who'd worked at O'Day Asset Management. And notwithstanding that file, which the FT suggested, they've not seen the, the full details of it, but they suggested it was very clear to staff at O'Day Asset Management what Mr O'Day was doing over this period of years. And I find this quite fascinating that, as Kira says, the yes men who did exactly as Mr O'Day required um, and others appear not to have done anything. They had their own duties, their own obligations. As approved persons or senior managers, they have a duty to tell the FCA of anything they think the FCA ought reasonably to be notified of. That's a obligation. That's a duty. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really interesting, and if I could go all the way back to 1951... Uh, one of the founders of social psychology, uh, a guy called Solomon Ash in the USA, did an experiment to investigate how people's decision-making would be influenced by others in their social group. To do this, he took a group of college students and he asked them to judge the relative lengths of lines drawn on a piece of paper. What the majority of the students didn't realise is that there were a group of stooges amongst them who'd been primed to give the same answers but the wrong answers, saying that that particular line clearly must be longer than the other line and that one there must be the shortest, despite it being absolutely apparent that that was not correct. And what he found in the face of a false consensus was that 70% of the students went along with it. They wanted to be part of the same group and the part of the decision-making uh, team that went with it. So what can a psychology experiment from 1950s America teach us about people in the financial services sector well it would appear that ultimately people keep quiet when they should speak up and in this scenario where O'Day Asset Management Crispin O'Day was the man it was his business lots of people at that business fundamentally had to stay in his back pocket and be good in terms of his uh, per per perception of them so that they kept quiet and that would appear to have happened since at least 1985, when the first of the FT allegations, the first of the 19 women, says that she was assaulted by him. That's decades mm. that people have kept quiet. And as Kira says, various executive committees who decided that, well, we need to do an investigation, we have to do the right thing, maybe following their own obligations vis-a-vis -vis the FCA, he just fired them until he got people who would turn a blind eye. That appears to be what's happened. Uh, as we say, these allegations are merely allegations at this point in time. But the fact that there's now 19 women who've come forward suggests that there may be more to this than mere allegations. Mm. And, and, I, and I think given all that background and the kind of situation of, you know, what 
it is like to bring forward an allegation in a professional context. I think it must have been very difficult for these 19 women to come forward and maybe it's the power of the collective voice that the FT brought together all these women and that's what really struck in the media. Mm. Yes, it, it is very noticeable, isn't it, that, that you know, these weren't whistleblowers. We, we talked about whistleblowers earlier, but these, these people who've come forward, whistlebl- whistleblowers after the effect, but they weren't able to blow the whistle whilst they were at, they didn't feel, they didn't feel empowered to be able to say anything whilst they were um, within the business. Because a number of these people were employees, or, you know, they are now ex-employees of, of OD Asset Management, a number of them business associates. And whistleblowing is a particularly reputationally challenging area because I think the instinctively, and we've seen this recently with some financial services businesses, there is a tendency to treat whistleblowers as the enemy. Uh, whereas, in fact, I think you know the public do judge businesses by their treatment of, of, of whistleblowers, and I think I think it's really important. And I just go back to those reputational things as well because we were talking about the uh, executive committee. Obviously, you know, post the publication of these uh, FT articles of these horrendous allegations made by by these by these women, you know, in fairly graphic detail in in, in the FT as well. Um, you know, and and the the, the media uh, sort of circus that that, that that ensued. They obviously did manage to remove him from the company, but only after, um, you know, continued continued coverage of this. Only and after it was so public that, frankly, well, there was no they, there was no other option. Yeah. And that that that's 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 not uncommon. So when you're dealing with these sort of cases from from a reputation management point of view, often you know the original the original request you get is how do we make this go away and you have to look at these sort of things on an individual basis and you look at this and you think well this isn't about how we make this go away it's if if we're going to be optimistic it's you know how do we stop a run on the institution how do we stop a run on uh the funds that Odie has you know you think of the co-op how do we stop a run on the bank well, in, in the case of OD Asset Management, of course, they didn't. No, absolutely. So they shuttered the funds. They didn't allow people to take their money out. Bad PR meant that people were desperate to get their money out no. of any OD Asset Management managed funds. Mm. They shuttered the funds. Uh, several of them have now been transferred to other asset managers, mm-hmm. taking the key portfolio manager with them. So investor money is effectively safe, hopefully, in the, uh, the new asset management firm's hands. But we're still left with OD Asset Management effectively shutting the stable gate after the horse had bolted yeah i mean the the pessimistic view of this i said the optimistic view was you know how do we stop a run the pessimistic view is how to retain some sort of value and that has been done i mean i think you know in terms of in terms of some of the funds have been moved some investors won't have lost as much money as they would have done had that not happened and that ultimately is what you're trying to do you're trying to protect the investor you're trying to protect the the, the people whose money it is that you know you 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 are you are running um but I do, I do think that you know that requires um, you know quite a lot of focus. Um, you know, you have to really focus on what you can control and not what you can't control. Um, and I think that you know because the, the, these sort of stories they get they garner a lot of attention. You know, the FT leads with them. Other people will clearly follow, and that is what happened. Um, and then you get into a situation whereby um, you know uh, how do you you know, how do you take the heat out of this situation? How do you remove the drama and the tension? Um, you can only focus on what you can control and what you can influence. Um, 
you know, there are very many different parties involved in this. We've talked about the association risk. We've talked about the banks and the brokerages exiting, or most of the banks and the brokerage and exiting. Not all of them have. I'm aware of one or two that stayed on board. But equally, that's, you know, they would say, well, you know, for the good of the underlying good of those clients, they need, you know, if we're going to move money around, if we're going to, uh, you know, if redemptions are going to be met, we need to transact, that they need to be able to transact. Um, and obviously, the other thing you, you're trying to do from a reputation management point of view is trying to ensure that everything is uh, reported fair and accurately, that when the media interpret events, that they're doing so in a way that is reasonable and fair. And I think one of the problems, once the board decided to make this decision to exit OD, was the fact that it's very therefore very, therefore very difficult to control what's going on. And I'm just going to read you. So sorry for the shuffling of papers, but it is intentional. I'll um, just read you this. This is for, from the FT. Reached by phone at lunchtime on Saturday, Odie confirmed he had been notified of the firm's decision, that is, to exit him, but suggested he would fight it. You have to have a willing buyer, willing seller, he said. He did not provide additional comment. But that's dynamite, because now you have additional... You haven't reduced the tension, because he, these these uh, loose cannon comments, if you if you like, have been made. You're, you're now... Th- this is now spiralling further and further out of control. And there's more media. And then you've got other editors and other newspapers saying, well, we really need to be on top of this. There's more and more happening. We might be able to get in things first. So it makes it really, really difficult. And ultimately, as we've said, it really comes about then how do you retain value? How do you protect those people, those investors who are innocent of of this, who did not know what they were entering into? And that's really where the focus has got to be. So what's next? What, what, what are the next steps in this? What's going to happen? Are we going to see a court case? What are the FCA going to do? What are the implications for the fund management industry? So I think if we start with uh, Mr. O'Day himself, the fact that the FT has brought 19 women forward with quite clear allegations of very, very serious sexual assault and other misconduct, uh, I think the likelihood of a criminal case against him is extremely high. Uh, I'm not a criminal lawyer, so don't quote me on that, but it seems very, very likely. For O'Day Asset Management, they've exited him from his business now. Uh, What's left of the business is going to have to rebrand itself, and I think they're in the process of doing that. In fact, already we're doing so. Um, But the likelihood ultimately is that the FCA is going to have to focus on its own concept of what is non-financial misconduct. Yeah, that's completely correct. Um, the FCA intends to provide further guidance on non-financial misconduct, including how non-financial misconduct should be considered within its rules later in 2023. Um, but it's almost difficult to see in some respects how guidance will be able to rectify the fundamental issue that the rules don't work when it comes to non-financial misconduct. The FCA has said that they're going to um, let Parliament choose to legislate if it wishes to specify that certain offences should lead to an automatic prohibition from a regulated sector. So ultimately, even though the Me Too movement began some years ago, it's finally arrived at the FCA and it's front and centre. looks like the FCA's rules are going to have to change and that people convicted or even accused potentially of really serious misconduct will definitively not be fit and proper and so have to be removed from the financial services sector. Okay, and so we can we can expect more more of this to come, I think. And relatively soon. I think Mr O'Day's activities and the FT expose has really brought it forward. Great. 
So that's all we have time for today. We'll be back next month where we'll be exploring further areas where reputation and regulation intersect in the world of asset and wealth management. Do check the show notes for links to some of the things we've been talking about today. And if you have questions or suggestions for future topics, then do get in touch at studios at lansons.com. You've been listening to Misconduct, Money and Reputation. Please do stay tuned for further episodes by subscribing on your favourite podcast app. You can find us by searching Lansons or Catton. This episode was recorded in the Lanson Studios and brought to you by reputation specialists Lansons and law firm Catton. The content in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest standards of care applicable to attorneys in any given situation. This podcast is considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions or comments made by external guest speakers are not to be attributed to Catton Mutual Rosenman LLP and or Catton Mutual Rosenman UK LLP or their individual attorneys, lawyers, all rights reserved.